Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Money and Meaning Show. We are so pleased you decided to join us today. My name is Jeff Bernier. I am your guide and host today as we continue our monthly discussions around money and meaning. Uh, the show tries to combine or attempts to combine conversations about things that help you uncover what matters most to you in your life, and then also wealth management and financial planning techniques, strategies, and ideas to help you create the capacity, the freedom, to go pursue your vision of a meaningful life. I am so pleased today and been really excited about, about this particular episode. I've got a really special guest today that I think you're really going to like. We're all going to learn something. Going to focus mostly on investment uh, management today and portfolio design and some of that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm thinking that you're going to really get a lot out of this. But um, I just can't tell you how pleased I am to introduce Dr. Eduardo Repetto uh, from Avantis Investors. And uh, uh, um, Eduardo is responsible at Avantis. Uh, he started the firm in 2019. Uh, he's responsible for the research, design, implementation of their investment strategies, um, and he provides oversight to the investment team, marketing, and then he also, once in a while, gets to talk to end investors like ourselves. Um, prior to Avantis, he spent many years as the co-chief executive officer and, and co-chief investment officer uh, at Dimensional Fund Advisors, uh, another, another firm that you may be familiar with. While he was at DFA, uh, Eduardo provided oversight across investments, client service, marketing, um, ha ha wore a lot of hats as the co-CEO uh, and co-chief investment officer. So those are big, those are big, big jobs at a, at, a, at, a, at a very significant firm that many of you may be familiar with. Uh, he earned his PhD in aeronautics from the California Institute of Technology, a master's degree in engineering from Brown University. Uh, a Diploma of Honor in, at Civil Engineering at the University in Buenos Aires. He's a trustee of California Institute of Technology. He's won a lot of industry awards, but also a lot of awards back in his previous life. So without spending the whole show reading your incredible bio here, Eduardo, I'm just going to say welcome and thanks for being on the Money and Meaning Show today. Thank you very much for inviting me, and, and just call me Eduardo. Don't say doctor. I'm Eduardo. I'm <laughs> yeah, okay. Eduardo. Yeah I, yeah, I talked to my relationship guy at, at Avantis and said, look, does he want me to call him a uh, doctor? And he says, heck no, Eduardo would be good. So uh, thank you, Eduardo, so much. And, you know, um, you, you do have a significant uh, academic background I want to talk about in a moment. But first, I'd just like to hear a little bit about you. I'd, I'd just like for our audience, I mean, this is a, an audience um, – of individuals primarily, and they always like to hear about uh, the people behind the expertise. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, if you don't mind, just for a minute or two. Yes, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. Look, uh, I, I was born in, in Argentina, 
so I always say that I'm way south from the very way <laughs> south, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and when people say you have an accent, yeah, because I'm from the deep south, you know, <laughs> very 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 south south tip of South America. Yeah, they tell me, the they tell me that too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and uh, I. My parents are, are still alive. I have a sister also. My father is turning 19 years old in, in a month and a half. Wow. So I'm, I'm going to his party. Very cool. uh, I have to organize it, but I'm going there. And, and so, but I studied engineering in Argentina, as you mentioned, and wanted to study more. And there is no better place to, to advance your studies than the universities in the United States. You know, you see the ranking, you see the, the, the famous professors and the knowledge that happens here. So I applied and I was very lucky that the Brown University gave me a fellowship because I didn't have the money to afford it. So, the, so I came here, went to Brown, the master's. The weather in the East Coast is a little bit tough i uh, <laughs> noticed right. and, and so i was suffering in the winters like you cannot imagine and i have the opportunity to move to california to go to caltech the california institute of technology another prestigious very prestigious university right and and uh, i got a phd there and i i did it in in a very weird field like what uh, you say aeronautics but in, in general that's the biggest subject but yeah. it's, it's more granular it was more about developing materials models so you want to understand how a material works so we was working on developing the model the, the physical model right and then uh, the physical model is very complicated to solve by hand so you use numerical methods in computers to solve how that works and try to predict how the, the material will behave under certain conditions yeah so it's a very weird thing yeah. that it has a lot of applications for defense industry for right. for, for for a lot of things semiconductors yeah. and whatnot right. but uh, after that uh, i really didn't want to be a professor so i had to make a decision in life um I always like to do things that uh, you can see the outcome and in, in people's lives. And so you can be a doctor, for example, and you you, you you do surgery and something and the person does great and you feel good about that. Yeah. So that's one thing. But I really cannot deal with blood. It's, <laughs> it's not me. Yeah. So, so finance is perfect because all of us face financial challenges. And, and so I decided to, to work in finance and I was extremely lucky to, to be able to study. When you get a PhD program, you, 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 you basically are trained to learn things. Right. And so I was working in, in, in finance and learning a lot of things and began to know quite a lot about a lot of things in finance and now I'm in finance. Right. So I have a wife yeah. from sorry sorry. Yeah. Oh, keep going. I, I I have a wife uh, that is from California. Um she was born here um, and I have three kids. Uh, the oldest one is 20 years old and goes to NYU uh, and there to in high school. Very good. Well, you're you're a busy guy then. It sounds like to me, but but so you migrated from uh, the academic world and the PhD in and uh, in, in again earning applied materials and processes and and those kinds of things and and migrated right out of the PhD program into finance. Well, I, I work a little bit in in at Caltech as, as a as a scientist. I see. Uh, Research, so yeah. exactly because yeah. you you have. You have to make the decision, do I leave this world or not? Yeah. And and if, if not, you have to apply to be a professor. And and so 
it, it, look, it's difficult to say I'll, I'll leave this and jump into another pool. So yeah. I, I worked a couple of years as a scientist gotcha. at Caltech. Yeah. Uh, and then at some point they say, hey, you just have to buy the bullet and go. And I just went. Yeah. Well, you've, you've had an incredible career. Uh, you know, like I said, you've spent over, you know, over 20 years in this industry and most of that time, you know, at, a, at, an, at, an, at another firm. And you, at, at your last role there, you were the co-CEO uh, as well as sort of ran a lot of the investment research and understanding how markets work and all of that. So I'm really curious as, as both a CEO and also just uh, understanding how markets work, what changes have you seen in the investment management industry over the last 20 years? And that's, that's a big question, so you could talk forever, but broad strokes, <laughs> broad strokes, what do you think the major changes in our industry over the last 20 years are? Or have well, uh, that, that, that's a great that's a great question. So look, in the last 20 years, I'm, I'm going to speak about market events and then a little bit about investments. In the last 20 years, we, we tend to forget, but in the last 20 years, uh, we saw a very, very big uh, market crisis in right. 2008, 2009. Right. And we, we haven't seen something like that since, well, we were not alive, but we haven't seen something like that since 19, this 1930s, the right. 29 crisis. So that was a very, very big one. It's, it's once in a lifetime, hopefully, let's right. say, right. a once in a lifetime event. So that's something that is, 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 is it was interesting and um, painful for many people. And But, you know, people working with advisors uh, were able to handle that properly. Uh, on on an investment, there is, there is always evolution in investments. So people understand better how to think about investment today. And that's why we exist here at Avantis. We are using the latest in financial science in order to provide better solutions. Uh, and then the other thing is ETF. Look, uh, if you go back uh, 20 years ago to, to early 2000s, ETF were just tiny and didn't exist. What is an ETF? It's something like a mutual fund, but it trades in the market. And so that technology, that instrument didn't exist, existed, but it wasn't not so uh, so used by by investors. Yeah. And that that technology has a lot of advantages related right. to mutual funds. Gotcha. And 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 now now it's huge. Okay. Uh, in the last in the last thirteen years, that since we have data, ETF uh, got. 2.3 trillion in inflows, equity ETF, 2.3 right. trillion in inflows, while mutual funds got a 1.9 trillion in outflows. So ETF are providing uh, better services yeah. for people. Yeah, so the evolution, I guess, is you're, you're referring to over the last 20 years. Um, you know, you mentioned we went through the financial crisis. Obviously, we had uh, the, the tech bubble before that, but that was pretty minor relative to the total potential meltdown of the system, which we experienced yeah. in eight, nine. Um, and then of course you, you mentioned the evolution of the solutions, the actual packaging of the way for us to access these ideas has improved with the advent of the ETF and, and, uh, your firm, uh, Avantis has obviously, uh, been on the forefront of that here, uh, since, since founding. And you just mentioned, um, something that I think has changed for many of us in, that is this move to a more uh, evidence-based approach to building portfolios. Um, yes. And we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. But uh, Avantis um, talks about this evolutionary step of going from passive and active and financial science. I, I think that's a, a comment y'all make on your website is we, 
we have an evolutionary step forward for passive and active investing using financial science. So yes. can you explain what this means in a way that non-PhDs uh, and, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. can understand? So what is financial science to Avantis? Look, it, let, let, me, let me explain this to you with an example. And if we go back 120 years ago, you know, how people were making cars. You were getting an artisan to make a car and, you know, that person was making the engine, the frames, the, the leather seats, everything was done by that artisan right. that was good at everything, but not a specialist at anything. Right. And, and, and he wanted to make two cars. This car will be different from the next car. And making cars was very, very expensive because you need a lot of artists to make each one of the cars. Right. Until one person came with an engineering and science idea and decided to say, hey, if you make if this, this uh, worker makes the chairs and this worker makes the frames and this worker makes the, the engine and everyone specializes, we're going to have better chairs better engines, better frames, and we're going to have all the cars' the sense of quality control is higher, and we're going to produce more cars because everyone is super specialized in what they do. Okay. So science and engineering allowed to go from an art of making cars to an engineering process of making cars where the costs were, became lower, the reliability higher, and the product a better product, and That's the consumer was better off. Right. The same happened in finance, if you think about that. When everything started in finance, people were picking a store here and there, you know, there was no scientific approach. There was no knowledge, no data, you think, 50 years ago. But since then, a lot of research has happened and a lot of the ways that people, in an artful way and not extremely reliable, used to pick stocks, now you can have a systematic process to do that. And you finish with better portfolios, more diversified, more reliable, and lower fees. Gotcha. That's what we do. That's what we do. Okay. So using the data, using the research to build more evidence-based. And when I say evidence-based, I use that term kind of throwing it out. It's become such a, a buzzword. But but you're using the the research that you have. And, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, you didn't have the computing power to analyze data like you do today. So, again, so the evolution of using the – so when you describe financial science, it's really about using the data to inform your investment decisions as opposed, exactly. as opposed to just picking stocks randomly or – a narrative that someone might tell that there's no data behind was the old method. That was the old uh, pre-assembly line method, and now you're using the more advanced. Uh, and I should say assembly line because there's deep um, expertise and, and craftsmanship in how you design the formula, how you define the, exactly. the, the, the data analysis. And so, uh, so when you use the term financial science, you're basically talking about using the data, I'm assuming, and the research around the data that informs yes. how markets work. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And it's not only our research. There is 50 years of research trying to understand how markets work, why that security has that price, and what's implications for that security having that price. Uh, and, and, and there is a lot of research on that, and it's up to us to use it and, and be sure we use it. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, you know, one of the th one of the things that's happened too, obviously, over the last fifteen years or so, is this move to more passive strategies, index funds, as an example. I just read uh, not that long ago that about forty five percent of mutual funds uh, are now in some type of index type product. And these are mutual funds, 
Um, and, uh, you know, a decade ago, that was 25%. So is this a, is this a good thing uh, for the investor uh, in terms of this move to indexes or, or, or index strategies or, or not, do you think? I, I think this is another thing that changed in the last 20 years, and we didn't, we didn't mention that. I'm sorry I didn't mention it. Uh, if you were uh, 20, 25 years ago, uh, people were looking this at index funds, you know, saying, mm, I don't know if I like this or not. But uh, time has shown that they are not a bad solution. They're a good solution. They're better than the average stock picker out there, uh, partly because they have lower fees and lower turnover, uh, and they're well diversified. So um, I think it's a good thing. It's yeah. a good thing for a lot of investors. Um, there, there are some investors that are lucky that have an advisor like you, and those can do a little bit better than index funds. But for the average investor, uh, an index fund has been a, 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 a step solution. forward. Yeah. A step yeah. forward. Yeah, I also read um, or, or saw um, some research years ago um, that talked about this trend towards indexing. And, you know, and, 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 the, and the speaker at the time was making the case that what's really wise for the individual investor, indexing, uh, could be more um, volatile for a system. So if everybody was indexing uh, or, or 80 or 90 percent of the market was indexing, his, his argument was you might have a more volatile environment because the indexes have to buy and sell at the same time to, you know, to replicate the indexes. Any comments on that or thoughts on that? Is that, is yeah, that something that, to be concerned about or not? I don't think volatility will a lot of the issue, but you, you are just nailing what you're saying. Indices have a lot of advantages for the individual investor that doesn't have an advisor like you, but uh, but they have indices have a problem. Just they're trying to simplify the engineering of investing. They're trying to make it cookie cutter, no? And in the process of making cookie cutter, they make some, cut some corners, uh, and that's part of the problem with indexing. And you mentioned one that is very, very important. When an index changed their holdings, so they are holding Apple, and now they are going to hold IBM. They change the holdings. They change the holdings on one particular day. They hold securities for many indices for a whole year, and in one year, they make all their trades. Yeah, in one day. Yeah, in uh, one day. Yeah. In one day. That's called the reconstitution day. You right. know, it's a big day. Right. And that, that day, if you have indices that are very, very, very large with a lot of money, that day, they have a humongous demand for liquidity because they want to sell a lot of stock and buy a lot of stock. And no that day, uh, they... They, they push volumes and to levels that are not common for those stocks. Yeah. And so they affect prices, they affect everything. And, and who pays for that? In general, the index holder pays for that. That's called the index reconstitution effect. Yeah. That is a cost that is not seen, but is there, yeah. is there by the index holder. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I heard an analogy once. It's if, you know, if they're adding a company to an index, and they have to go out and buy, you know, large numbers of shares in one day. Uh, it, it's like trying to buy roses at five o'clock on Valentine's Day. So everybody's rushing to the flower shop at five o'clock, and you're probably not getting the best deal if you've got to buy flowers on Valentine's Day at five o'clock. So, so how does your so how do your strategies differ from these index funds that we just talked about? So, so good in general for someone. Who, who might not be aware of some of these other techniques or have an advisor, but, but, but for, for your strategies, how are your strategies different than that? 
Well, you don't want to be a forced buyer or a forced seller. You mentioned Valentine's Day. So in Valentine's Day, you became a forced buyer. So basically, you will pay whatever you need to pay to get that. And that's what the index fund is kind of forced to do because they have too much the index and it's a forced buyer. So they have to pay what they have to pay. In. So we don't want to be forced buyers and forced sellers. So we try not to say we are going to do this yes or yes, because the moment that you say that, you finish not with the best trading deal. You don't finish with the best pricing when you buy. But if this is common sense, you know, when you're going to buy a house, if you tell the real estate agent of the other party, they say, I'm going to buy this house no matter what. Yeah, your negotiation power is gone. gone. Yeah, The same happens in the market. So we're trying to be way more clever when we manage our funds or uh, our strategies because we want to be sure that, that we have some pricing power, that we are not forced to trade no matter what because that implies higher costs right. and that diminishes performance. And, and we're trying to do things a little, a little bit better. It's still having well-diversified strategies, but a little bit better implementation. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So uh, like many of us, I started the early part of my career um, believing that I could find, you know, the next Warren Buffett and put my client's money uh, in a strategy. Uh, so what, what most might call conventional active management. So I spent the early part of my career trying to find these stock pickers that, that had information that no one else had. Um, but obviously, um, the weight of evidence um, caused us to change because the evidence indicated that over time, very few of these guys win, uh, and we won't know which ones win for 20 or 30 years. Um, and so it's a, it's a pretty uncertain way to manage money in our view. So we, we try to improve our, our process and use these um, strategies like you have and some others where you're basically looking at these underlying factors. I call them factors. Other people use different terms, I guess, for them. The problem today is, I think, is that a lot of people are aware of this research and now Wall Street being a manufacturing um, entity manufactures a lot of products that purport to use these factors. Um, Someone once called it a factor zoo, you know, like there's, <laughs> yeah. you can find a lot of different factors that you might use in building these strategies. And, and, and of course, how you implement these ideas matters a lot. That's really part of what you're talking about in this sophisticated trading and cost matter a lot, as you just mentioned as well. So what are the main factors that Avantis pays attention to in, in implementing these portfolios? Yeah, so you, you know, there is a paper called the Factor 2, and I speak about now people find 400 factors. Why? <laughs> because you give someone a computer with a lot of data and they will find a pattern. Yeah. And, I, and, and then they find a pattern and they say, well, this pattern is a factor. And there we go, we have a new one. Yeah. This is the same as going to the zoo and seeing a zebra. And you say, oh, it has stripes. And, and then saying, well, animals with the stripes are zebras. And then you go on and, and hug a tiger yeah. because it has a stripe. But <laughs> that's not the zebra. It's dangerous. Yeah. So it's just doing all these factors tend to be dangerous if you're just thinking about, oh, I saw a pattern and I continue in the future. So what we do with things that yeah, are we, related. Yeah, we call that, we call that data mining. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You're perfect. Yeah. So so what, what we try to do is factors that are 
related with valuations is more. We, we try to go a little bit beyond factors. We try to think about how all these learnings that we have from factors help us understand valuations. And so, for example, there is something called a value factor. And what is a value oh, yeah. factor is? It's saying companies that have low price relative to the fundamentals of the company, for example, the book value or the earnings, while companies that have low price tend to have higher returns. And we, we use that. And why we use that? Because it has a link to valuation. If you're buying a stream of earnings of the company and you're paying very little, probably you are having higher expected returns. Yeah. Another one that we consider is something called profitability. It, that says, if two companies have the same price, but one produces way more profits than the other, uh, that one that produces more profits have higher returns. So you can see all these things are linked to uh, the valuation of the company. They are not just things that happen just for the sake of happening randomly in the past, and we have no expectations that will continue in the future. So value, profitability, a, a little bit of size. When you have these characteristics that I mentioned in smaller companies, they tend to have higher returns because they have higher opportunities. So we consider all these things uh, in, 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 a, in a joint way in order to be able to see what companies are expected to do better than others. Gotcha. Okay, so value, uh, profitability, um, size are the, are the primary ones that you guys use in your yeah. strategies. The one, you know, the one that I had the hardest time understanding is the profitability factor. Because, yeah. you know, we, we talk a lot about how markets are relatively efficient and that prices reflect the information. So it always seemed to me, if you've got a company that has higher profitability, we expect higher returns uh, with a company that's more profitable versus a company that's less profitable. Well, that sounds like common sense to me. Everybody should know that. And, and if everybody knows that more profitable companies have higher returns than lower profitable companies, it seemed to me that it all it should already be in the price. So explain to me how, how that's that, faulty that's, thinking. Yeah, it's faulty thinking. So if you, if, if you pick a random high profitability company, so I go and pick a company and that company has high profitability. High profits, yep. Odds are that that company has very, very high price. Right, on average. So basically, if that company with high profitability has very, very high price, that company doesn't have high expected returns. Because of the price. Because yeah. the price is too high and the company has average returns. The, the price is high because the profits are high. Yeah. The time that you really get companies that have high expected returns is when you have those companies have high profits, high profitability, but the price is not as high. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, the price is heavily discounting those profits. And because it's heavily discounting those profits, is you have higher returns. Gotcha. That's why when, when I say, if at the beginning, again, when we're speaking of profitability, if you have two companies, that's the best way to decide, to think about this. You have two companies, and those companies have the same level of profitability, but one has a lower price than the other, the one with lower price is the one that is more attractive from the spectrum point of view because you're buying a stream of profits at the lower price. Right. Okay. So so you can't look at profitability in a vacuum. You've got to look at it relative to the price. Exactly. Uh, other factors as well, obviously, but but certainly exactly. the, the price. Okay. Well that well that makes sense. So the profitability factor is is relevant um, but not 
in and of itself and ignoring all other characteristics of a company. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I say post-factor investing, because instead of thinking of one, each one at a time, you want to put all of them together. Well, that's where I'm going next, because um, y- y- you know, back in my previous life, as I mentioned before, when we were using conventional active managers, we would build these sophisticated, broadly diversified portfolios, and we would essentially fill up the categories, fill up large cap, small cap, value, growth, you know, international, domestic, in this, and we had all these components. And now we've moved into this more evidence-based approach. And one way to do it is to have these components, have a value strategy and a profitability strategy and a small cap strategy. Uh, Or you could have a unified portfolio that has all of those in one portfolio. So I'm curious your opinion in portfolio construction. Now, this might be in the weeds a little bit. But in portfolio construction, is an advisor or investor generally better to use strategies to combine multiple factors or to use the separate components? No, it is certainly better to consider all these things together, not one at a time. And I give you an example. Let's let's suppose that you are going to buy a portfolio that has value exposures, thinking about only one factor, low price securities. Okay. Yeah. Value, right? If 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 you buy companies that have low price and you don't look anything but just having low price, you will finish with a portfolio that has companies that are losing money. Right. Why? Because companies that lose money tend to have low price. Right. So so basically you have low price but negative profitability or low profitability. And then you say, I'm going to buy a profitability portfolio. And what it is, a portfolio of companies that make a lot of profits. But odds are that those companies have extremely high price. So basically, you are buying something that is just the opposite of value. Yeah. So on one side, you bought something that is value. On the other side, you bought something that is not value. They cancel each other. And you finish with nothing but costs. So you are better off considering all these things together. The companies that you really want to have, you want to increase the spectral returns, are the companies that have good or high profits, but the price is attractive still. Yeah. Because that's those are the ones that have higher returns. And if you consider one thing at a time, it's like going and buying a company. Hey, I want to buy your company. Give me your balance sheet. You, You offer me, do you want my income statement too. I say no. I just want your balance sheet. Yeah, but like when you yeah. and when you do profitability, it's just the opposite. I say I give you your income statement and, and say, but please don't give me your balance sheet. You want to see those Both. these two things together, and this is why you need to integrate all this integrated approach. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot a lot of sense. And um, you know, I, I guess as you're talking, um, this is certainly different than the traditional index fund, which is ranking the companies based on the size of the businesses, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're market cap weighted. So they're weighting based on their formula is the size of the businesses, ir- yeah. irrespective of the profitability or the price. So yes. that's, that's the major difference. It seems to me, well, yes. let's, I have to bring up one thing here and that is the, the value factor. Um, yeah. so, you know, there's a lot of, uh, discussion about value because in the last, you know, several years, uh, the, the market appears to be dominated by a handful of large growth stocks. Yep. Um, and so the value premium that has existed for a for long, long time uh, has not 
been evidence recently. So it, um, has anything changed in the world that would alter um, the science, I guess, where it's no, no longer relevant today? Or tell me, tell me your take on that. That that's 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 great. You always have to worry about has something changed, and uh, and and it's very important in general. Things don't change, but it's, you always have to to think about that in order to be updated in life. So uh, there are a couple of things going on. So the f the first one is uh, most of the investors out there have an outdated value definition. So yes, in that sense, they have an outdated. Okay, let me say that again. They have an outdated value uh, definition. Defin definition. Okay. So okay. the way that they think about value stocks is outdated. Okay. And and let's put some some clearest definition there. So if most most investors define value stocks as securities that have a low price relative to the book value of the company. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So if you have that definition. The cash flows that the company generate are not part of the definition. Yeah, just the book value. Because yeah. I'm only using book value. I'm only buying a company based on the balance sheet, if you do that, disregarding the income statement and the statement of cash flows. So that's an outdated definition. And that's particularly outdated now that we have so many companies that, that produce cash flows, but they don't have a lot of physical plants. Yep. No? Right. And so a lot of one thing. That, yeah. Exactly. So you have you have you have partly is that people have used an outdated uh, value definition, and this has made things worse than they should have been. Now, uh, it's true also that even if you adjust for that definition, some uh, companies that are growth companies did much much better still than the good definition of value. Not by as much, but still did better than the good definition of value. Okay. And but these things happen. You know, I, I, I'm old enough, and, and, and you have also experienced the tech bubble. Remember? Tech bubble, the yep. 2000? Yep. When you have, we have companies that made absolutely no money or very little money, and the price keep on going up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And up, and up. But, you know, growth is winning. Yeah. And these companies that make absolutely no profits, the price keep on going and going and going. Right. And these things happen. These are called bubbles. Uh, and they have in tons. This, the tulips bubbles in the Netherlands in 400 years ago. Right. So they have in tons of this. Nothing new. And yeah. nothing new is, is a, a lot of people getting excited about something and pushing prices way beyond what the price the fundamentals of the company, the business of the company justify those prices. Right. But, you know, things go back to fundamentals and sometimes take longer time than we want, but things go back to fundamentals. So value works, it, it's continue, if we continue to expect it to work as long as you use the right definition. Okay. And, and we're using the right definition, so we feel very comfortable. Yeah, well, two things. Well, I heard three things there. The first one was... Um, while nothing has significantly changed, you do have to think about value differently because there's so many companies that don't have um, a lot of um, plant and equipment and things of things. So you've got to rethink how you value companies. Uh, the second thing I, th I think I heard was this is not unusual. There are periods of time all through history 
where one factor beats another factor and, and so forth. And the third efferent, uh, inference I take from that is uh, really um, supports what you previously said about having a multi-factor approach. Yes. Because just like you diversify with asset classes, having multiple factors, you know, you, you've got things that are working and things that aren't working all the time, but they all have positive expected returns yeah. if, if they're a truly a factor that matters. Yeah. Um, so that's that's really great a great insight and uh, that that's um, that's terrific. I I want to wrap up here in just a moment, but I want to just say one last thing. I I saw a video um, that someone shared with me recently, and it was Malcolm Gladwell, who's an author. He's written some some phenomenal books, and he was talking about the financial crisis, and he was using a famous civil war battle in his analogy um, of the financial crisis, and it was really about hubris. And, and, and ego and overconfidence, I guess. And so let me just, let me just read the, the quote, and then I'll ask you a question. He says, in times of crisis, we think what we want from our leaders is the benefit of their expertise. And that's not true. What we want from our leaders is the benefit of their humility. It's not how smart you are. It's about your values. Can this leader keep, keep the success from going to their head? And so as we get ready to close here, um, we're a firm that likes to partner with, with other uh, firms that are clear about their values. So tell me a little bit about Advantis's values and how, uh, and, and how you serve your clients. That, I, I love it. And, and look, in, in science or in finance, if you believe too much on yourself and your ego, your ego will put in in. In, in as an obstacle for for learning more because you already think that you know everything and, and you never long know everything we are here to learn every day to be better every day so ego is something you can leave it behind and learn that a we know as much as we can today but hopefully tomorrow we'll learn more and so what we stand for at advantage what we stand is we want the, the, your clients, the, the, the advisors' clients, to do as well as possible. So our job is to work with advisors to deliver them the best investment solutions we can, the best knowledge we have, the best content support in marketing, asset allocation knowledge, everything we can, so that you can help your clients as, as much as possible. Because if that end client succeeds, we're happy. Right. You have done a good job in life if you do that. Yeah. And look, the business will do well if you do that well. Yeah. And so that's what we focus and that's our goal. Terrific. That's great. Well, it's, it's clearly a culture of learning and, and, and um, humble spirit. So you're always learning new things. And again, for the benefit of the end investor. I mean, that's what it's, that's what it's about, it sounds like, to you and your firm as, as it is with ours. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate your time today. This has been really terrific um, and really appreciate your, uh, your, your sharing with us because, again, I know that you're a, a super busy guy. Any final comments or thoughts before we, we wrap up here? No, look, uh, first, thank you very much for inviting me. And, uh, and I really appreciate it. I always learn from this uh, conversation. So thank you very much. Second is, look, investors will go through turbulent times. And, and this is how, something that I always say is, look, I want to live through many financial crises. And you say, you are crazy. Why do you want <laughs> that? Because I want 
I want to live long. And the crises will come. You know, markets going down like we saw in January is not an anomaly. That happens all the time. It's not a, yeah. and so, it's not a so bug, what, it's a feature, right? It's a feature. It's right. a feature, absolutely. And so what we have to do is be ready when they come and withstand, withstand that one. It's like when you're in the ocean, the waves come, you, are, you know that they're going to come, so you're ready. Well, these things will come. So, you, you know, your clients, because of your help, have portfolios that will withstand those waves coming. And the big picture is always good expected outcomes. And yeah. so let's keep the eyes out there, but be ready with the waves are coming. Oh, and so yeah. that that's something that I always said. So, yeah. well, but thank you. Well, that's a great way to, to leave our discussion. So if, uh, if, if someone wanted to learn more about you or Avantis, how would they, how would they find your firm? How would they find oh, the firm? Well, first they can contact you. That, right. That's absolutely a way to do it. But if, but if not, we have a website, avantisinvestors.com. Um, please feel free to, to go there and, and, and just contact us. But if, you know, your contacting you is, is a good way to contact us. Yeah, awesome. Well, this has been terrific. Thank you again, Eduardo. This has been uh, fascinating and a very useful discussion. I think, especially today, if there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uncertainty in the markets as there normally is. I mean, that's not, that's also a feature. Markets are uncertain in the short run and, and unknowable. Uh, but also, um, you know, the dynamics of the changes in the marketplace and the evolution of, of our industry. So thanks again so much. And audience, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you found this content useful. I know we got in the weeds a bit on investment uh, ideas here, but I found it useful and I'm, I'm sure you will too. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, check us out. Uh, you can check us out on iTunes, Spotify, uh, at the Tandem Growth website. You can reach out to me at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com and uh, give us a rating if you enjoyed the, the, enjoyed the show and uh, have a great day. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com. Or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.